It's the 200th and final episode of Raiders Get Animated Spectacular Showcase Showdown! Stay tuned. Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about animation, storytelling, and saying goodbye. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today is our 200th and final episode. We, we had one mission and we've, we've done it and we thought, let's, let's go out on a high note, I guess. I mean, I think we had a lot of missions and <laughs> we were differently successful, but we're definitely successful in one mission. <laughs> Which was elevating the discourse of animation as an art form. We did that. Not, was it us single-handedly? I don't believe so. But we helped advance that, I feel. When we started this podcast six years ago, we were like the only one of like two or three animation podcasts uh, in all the podcast realm. Um, and did anyone listen to us then? There were dozens of you. And now there's hundreds of animation podcasts available to you. And we still have those same few dozen listeners. So thank you <laughs> from the bottom of our heart for listening to like 300 hours. <laughs> Of Chris and Mackenzie? At least, at least some of those were pretty long. I don't think this will be as long as most certainly 199, <laughs> because that was a long one. But um, in this episode is a little bit different because uh, we're getting a little bit personal. We did this a little bit a long time ago in an episode called Our Writers Ourselves. Uh, where we talked about things that influenced us um, uh, that we loved, you know, growing up. Like, what are the things that were influential? And I think this, this is a little bit different because it's not just what influenced us growing up, like what touched us growing up, but what inspires us as artists to make things. Because it's, it's a very different feeling to be influenced by something than to have that, that fire, that feeling of uh, this watching, experiencing this thing makes me want to go make something myself. I have to make something now. Yeah, I think it's, it's easy to like see a bunch of movies every year and go like, these are the best movies of the year. But I feel like not every year do I get a movie or not even every year do I get a movie where I like leave the audience and go like, Oh, I really need to like go make something. And it, I, I think that I couldn't define this for a long time personally, but then talking to you, Chris and to other creatives is this, there's like this je ne sais quoi quality of like, when you see something great that kind of like, it's like the, if you're grading a movie on like a scale of one to 100, it's the extra credit. Hmm. Like, I can't say that it can really define, like, whether a movie is good or bad. It doesn't. Um, but it's when something does something so 
in such a way that speaks to you as a creative that you feel like you need to go and type something out or write some notes right now. Like that's this inspiring quality that I think creatives have when they see something that they love. And I think it's, it's different. I think it starts when you're young because it's those things that you watch that you immediately want to play pretend with that. You want to draw the pictures of it. You want to, um, I'm thinking of Jack right now, who is a hundred percent back on Octonauts, a hundred percent bought in on Wolf Boy and the and the Everything Factory, and on the uh, what is it? The this is a book series, the Magic Treehouse book series, and I just see him pulling from all these things, and he's now creating his own versions of these stories. And he's like, I can't wait to make this into a story. I'm going to turn that into a story. I'm going to have these characters meet these characters and be in these worlds and live in these worlds. And he's, this morning I found him before 7 a.m. sitting in his bed um, writing a story in the notes app on his iPad. I was like, and he immediately closed it when he saw me. I was like, it's okay. Are you are you working on a story? He's like, yeah. I'm like, it's fine. Go ahead. Um, he he also, <laughs> which is scary for me. I'm like, I don't want him to go down this dark path. But he also made a list of stories that he wanted to write. I'm like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> the to do list never ends, Jack. <laughs> but I think you hit a a great point here that you're hitting at with Jack is that. It's, I think some, this is a feeling that I think is universal in children. There's this childlike quality of like loving something that you want to go do more with that. And I think as we get older, some people um, lose that and that's okay. Maybe you're not a creator or whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think some people turn that into like making fan art and fan fiction about a specific thing. And that's absolutely okay too. My husband is like, he jokes he's a scholar of fan fiction. So I'm not a person to look down on fan fiction. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's great. Um, I think that for me, especially like rather than seeing something um, and wanting to play just in that world and do fan things set in that world, I want to take the elements that I like about that thing and make it into a new thing. Mm. So it's like this transformative aspect rather than trying to stay within the, the playpen. I think part of that, to, to jump off that point, I think part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast in the first place was to, you know, pull open in a really analytical way the things that we loved and enjoyed to see how they worked, not to find the formula, but just to see the themes and the inner workings that made it function the way it did. You know, why is this so strong? And I think it's really important to allow ourselves to be um, audience members rather than critics. And I, I think the biggest reason that that we decided not to do a animation movie and TV review podcast, even though that's how we're on iTunes, because you have to <laughs> have a category in iTunes. So... 
Anybody who got to us finding, looking for movie reviews or TV reviews, sorry. You got hard-hitting dramaturgy and literary analysis. Tricked you um, with school. <laughs> <laughs> you're learning. Um, I feel like we didn't want to just look at something and critically analyze it in terms of its worth. Is this worthy? Is it good quality? I don't think that's the interesting thing. Because I think we had really good conversations, even those times where we looked at things that were less than good. Um, I look back on like Leo the Lion. I look back at um, Willy Wonka, wait, Tom and Jerry and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Which is still one of our top episodes. One of our top listened to episodes ever is that one. I hope it's good. I don't recall what we said. I mean, I know we didn't say all positive things. If anyone looking through our back catalog about like, what's this bad stuff that they're talking about? Like the things we talked about that we call bad are either like the creators have ex- like explicitly said like, oh yeah, that wasn't very good. Or like are like universally <laughs> known to be bad, like Leo the Lion. Yeah. We're not encouraging you to go watch Leo the Lion. Um, Tom and Jerry and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh I don't know if bads, it's a trip. It's definitely a trip. It is a trip. And I think one of our main differences to us, and I think there are other podcasts out there that would watch that as a hate watch or watch it to make fun. And we were we did the same thing we always do, which was analyze it. How did this get constructed? Why did this get constructed? How did the story get made? And it's all about understanding that. It's it's about effectiveness of the story. You know, what are the artists trying to accomplish? What was the reason for creating the thing? And how did they construct the thing to, to have the reaction that they wanted? And did it, were they successful? Mm-hmm. And I think Tom and Jerry... And Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is just a lot of ands in one single title. <laughs> I think what they wanted to do was sell DVDs. <laughs> and that's okay. Like, and that's okay. And I think they 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 succeeded in some way. Yeah, a lot of people watch that. A lot of people hate watch that. But it, you know, but it also was tackled things in an original way. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's. I'm one of the people who watches even terrible things and says, "What am I going to get out of this? What am I going to learn from it?" Mm-hmm. But I think there are to go one step back toward inspiration to create. It's that where you're surprised by what's there. And I think that element of shock and surprise that hits your gut is part of what activates you to say, oh, I was not expecting that. Yeah. I think I get what you're saying. I'm just gonna say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I just said, yeah, back at your, yeah. I'm (laughs) not, this is a really, yeah. Really deep conversation, hard hitting. I mean, I think it 
think so. We've we've covered a lot in ten minutes already. Uh, I will say uh, our personal homework for ourselves for this episode uh, before we get too far into like more of this is we each like kind of started figuring out like w- what is it that inspires us. We had to like go back and we ultimately wound up making lists of what we like. And it wasn't until you know episode two hundred of our podcast, um, <laughs> as we we learned this educational stuff each one of these episodes, and I want like the the five-hour college course summary of our, our juiciest bits at some point. I think I realized making this list and doing this episode, uh, there's something you hear in college and kind of throughout playwriting programs and all kinds of stuff. Like, you can't teach your voice. You just have to find it. And I realized, like, you can. This episode, I realized, you can teach people how to figure out what their voice is, which is, what do you like and why do you like it? That's mm-hmm. your voice. <laughs> Done easy i'm sorry that i've perfected playwriting programs hire me right you all all of our listeners now have an mfa in playwriting <laughs> just go <laughs> just follow through on this make a list of all the things you love and if you do it a- through animation um i think that's less cheating <laughs> on pretending to get an mfa in playwriting yeah i because i would i would venture to say most pl- people the Venn diagram of people who enjoy animation and the people who are trying to get an MFA in playwriting aren't as interconnected as as you would think. And maybe they should be. And maybe they should be. That's what I believe. I just know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something. This is this is my 200th episode, so I'm going to I'm going to say a little thing about my experience <laughs> when. And this gets back to the strengthening the animation discourse. But I remember being told in my MFA that one of my plays was too Mickey Mouse or too cartoony. I think that's a compliment you take now. Oh, I totally took it as a compliment. I said, thank you. Um, What I wanted to say was, which version of Mickey Mouse? You have to be more specific. Um, because I understand that Mickey Mouse is, <laughs> has been reinvented time and time again. Um, but I think now it's not such a bad word to say cartoony. Or I think what they meant was overly stylized and simplified. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's also like what's in vogue for theater right now, too, I think, which is like mm-hmm. so frustrating to me is like having gone through playwriting programs, like it must be serious character pieces, minimal sets, like two characters interacting. And now it's like, and this is a compliment. She kills dragons as a play. That's not animation, but like, that's a mm. great play, completely stylized, not based in like pure character realism whatsoever. Love it. Great example of what you can do with theater. And it's kind of cartoony. But I feel like it's those people who who are true to their voice, who have gone through and said, you know what? These are the things, these are the stories that I love. These are the way the stories that I love are told. And this is the way I'm going to tell them. I'm not going to listen to anybody else. I'm going to tell it the way that I want to tell it. Yeah, too many formal programs are trying to teach 
the voice of the people who run the program, not teaching the students how to find their voice and stick with it. Or the voice of popular things from 40, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, it'd be one thing to say, like, here are popular things and how to write for the popular thing and for what's in vogue at the time. But like what you're learning in a, a formal program for writing probably won't be popular by the time you're actually making a name for yourself. Mm-hmm. That's a skill you have to learn of like writing for what's popular or writing through the lens of what's popular, but not like just purely this is what's good. Otherwise you're stuck. Hmm. This episode is also about me justifying my lack of an MFA in playwriting, apparently. <laughs> and this is me justifying that I got something out of my MFA in playwriting. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against you, Art. Art and Dare, I appreciate everything, and I got everything from you guys. Everything. I appreciate you. You always... When I wrote a play that was inspired by Looney Tunes cartoons and Tony Kushner... He totally was like, make that. I want to watch that. And he totally was like, make that play. I was trying to imagine Bugs Bunny as the angel at the end of Act One of Angels in America. I'm like, oh, what's up, Doc? It was a play called Holy Schmidt. <laughs> and I loved it. I'm sorry, Holy Schmidt exclamation point. Yes. So. Oh. <laughs> I have no choice but to stand, as the kids say. Yeah, it, but it, I, I think that was my second going into third year where I started to realize, wait a minute, I should just write what I want to write. You know, I should, I should look at this a little bit deeper. And it's funny to come back after going through all these, all these episodes, looking at all these stories that we've looked at and all these characters we've lived with over these past six years. And just to say, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is this is like to be constantly reminded about the things that inspired, but to have a deeper level understanding of what it is about it, not just I want it to be cartoony, but like what what are the tools from cartoons or from these specific animated shows and movies that I can utilize that, mm-hmm. that are just naturally part of me, but now I know that they're there. Well said. So here, here we are um, t- talking to you, our listeners. Uh, this is <laughs> on our podcast, Writers Get Animated. We're talking about what has gotten us animated um, in the- <laughs> <laughs> through the years, what has animated our creative spirits. Uh, and hopefully uh, through this conversation, it'll inspire you to go out and make your own list, live your own life, find your own voice. I don't know why I'm speaking like this. All the, that's not my voice. I don't know why I suddenly changed my voice. I mean, I am honestly just, I, I'm so pumped up by the discovery, like, oh, you can find your voice by just knowing what you like. Like, it's such an easy concept that I wish everyone in the world who wants to create to know how easy it is to find your voice. Mm. But I think there, I think there are two sides to the coin, though. I think of, of when you find your voice and you look at the things that have actually 
inspired you to do to do and make and create art. I think there's that these things are just beyond what you are capable of doing at that time. Mm. So you, it's something, um, oh gosh, what is the word? So you, you see, it's something that you love, so you enjoyed it. But there's also this slight feeling just beyond your capacity. So it is um, where you want to do it. But you see that it that you to do that something like that you know you have to grow. So you're inspired, therefore you aspire. Aspiring, yeah. Thank you. So it's, yeah, it's, definitely. It's, like finding your voice is easy. I think actually speaking your voice, yeah, that's hard. But <laughs> and then I think there's a darker side to it. So there's the one side. There's the aspirational nature of it. Like I want to grow into that, and I want to find that. And I think the darker side is, will I ever, I'll never be able to make that. Like, I'll never, I'll never get there. I'll never be that good. Somebody has already created what I wanted to do. DuckTales 2017, like somebody <laughs> has already made that. And now I'm sad, you know. No one's like, made DuckTales 2027. You're right. You're right. But it's, it's like that, that feeling, it could go either way. And you want to make sure the coin lands more often on the aspirational. I could get myself there with work, practice, understanding, development, doing the writing. That's the other <laughs> part of it. Um, but then not landing on the, I don't think I could ever do that. Like I, somebody's already made it. Why do I even bother? So making sure that doesn't land. That's the danger, I guess, of like separating out, like being inspired by other creatives, but also not comparing yourself to other creatives. Mm. I think it's easy to do both, especially when you're younger. Uh, it really takes some learning and time and watching a lot of stuff and creating a lot of so-so things to realize how you can separate out that comparison and the inspiration. I think... Uh Another thing that comes up with it is uh, having a specific goal for yourself. Because without a specific goal for yourself, then it's just going to be feeling mad at everybody who's getting any kind of success because it doesn't even matter because you don't know what your own personal goal is. So anyone who's getting anything is upsetting. Yeah, it's like reading the MacArthur Genius Grant recipients. Like, I am so far from receiving a MacArthur Genius Grant that it, it doesn't make any sense for me to be envious of people who get that. <laughs> if that's a goal of mine, there's a lot of other goals to achieve between now and then. <laughs> you know what I want them to give out? I want a MacArthur Looney Grant. <laughs> They'd have to be crazy to give that out. Oh, nicely done. Thank you. So <laughs> anything else we want to say about inspiration and aspiring to do better and finding your voice? I mean, definitely one of the reasons, maybe spoilers for the, the end of this episode, um, 
But one of the reasons that we did this podcast, as you mentioned, and we're ending the podcast now is like, we feel like we've found that inspiration. Mm. And so TBD what that looks like, but this is not the last you'll see of Chris and Mackenzie, or at least Chris <laughs> and or Mackenzie. <laughs> I, I don't want to say and or. I feel like. <laughs> but yeah, we, we feel inspired now. So we want to. It took six years, but we feel inspired now, mm. holistically. And I think part of it is not every piece of what you create has to be inspired by absolutely everything that you are personally inspired by. So you don't have to take it as, I am a writer who writes this, but know that you have those tools to write whatever story you're inspired by. Because I think there's the tone of things, there's the story of things, and then there's your personal drive, your personal voice. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, what do you, the elements you find inspiring, not necessarily like, I'm going to go make Mitchell Mouse now. Like, I mean, that's pretty funny. I, I that might be something worth doing. <laughs> Mice are very popular. Mice are it right now. Mice are, Mice are it. So, Chris, thinking about all the things that inspire you Mm -hmm. and putting together that list, um, did you start to feel like there were similarities in things? Could you, like, pull out themes in what inspires you? Or were you, like, picking up individual um, nuggets of wisdom? That is a good question. So, in category inspired by animation... Uh, what I'll say this, what sur- surprised me first was just, it shouldn't have surprised me, but just how many things I've seen and just how much animation has been uh, a source of inspiration in my life. But I think what's interesting is when I saw your notes too, it's like, oh my gosh, like that's some of the same things that, um, that I, I'm found so some a lot of the themes that I've found had to do with and just looking through my list one more time because I love it um, I think the thing that I noticed is they were really really character based hmm. like really really strong in strongly defined characters and what it didn't matter whatever situation they were in, the character was 90% of it or 60%. It always tipped toward strong characters rather than, I don't want to say strong story, but the story blossomed from the character and their definition. Yeah, so these are characters, especially in like TV shows that you like that are animated. Um, you get the idea of that character up front right away, like first part of the episode, and then that's consistent throughout the rest of the piece. Right. Okay. Right. Like I think of um, 
we're, we're going to talk about DuckTales 2017 a lot in this episode, but like <laughs> the first episode of DuckTales 2017, like gives you the essence of all the main characters, like in the first seven minutes. <laughs> right. And it also sets you up on theme of everything. So every character is super specified, um, super specific, super well-defined, and also interconnected immediately to theme. Like every character has theme installed in them, you know, as part of their core DNA. This character means this, this character means this, this character means this. So they are at once individualized characters with relationships to each other and also thematic arguments at war with each other. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And like, it why spend a- all that time developing conflict through story, like for the first act of something, when you can just have characters who are in conflict at the get-go? Right. Like that first episode, I suppose the first half of that first episode, if you can, you know, if you have that whole two-parter be the first episode, that first episode, there's not too much action that happens. It's really small. The biggest um, piece of action that I, I think of as action for the story that ignites the story is Dewey overhearing Scrooge say family is nothing but trouble. Like that's activated. That's where things are. The fight later on in the in the garage where they think it's this secret bin, like that's that's not really the active part. This action is the idea of family is everything or family is trouble. Like what is and when the answer is family is both <laughs> but but trouble and togetherness equals adventure and so like that's what adventure means like of course there's going to be trouble because you're out having adventures mm-hmm. yeah if family's everything then you just want to in the the narrative argument of that show like if family's everything as donald assumes at the beginning like you just want to protect them you can't have any adventures you can't get into any trouble you must be safe at all times because if you're everything, you're going to protect it as if it's everything. And yeah, that show does a really good... Oh, man, I'm thinking more about it now. We can't make this episode just about DuckTales. No, again. we can't. We could, but we're not going to. <laughs> but we will not. But I, that's that's where it gets to it. Like, like, understanding that character and theme is linked in a lot of the things that I've been inspired by. It's, it goes beyond just, oh, that was a fun story with fun characters. Like, there's, there's that little extra credit of these characters mean something. Mm-hmm. What about for you? Anything, any themes that you want to start with? Oh, I mean, there's so many. I feel like I have so much to say about so much. I'll get an easy one out of the way first. For anyone who's a long-time listener, you have... You've heard me say the word bathos a lot. It's like a Greek word for like taking something. It's a comedic structure where something is extremely serious and you just like hit it in the knees and take all the seriousness out of it. Um, what's a good example of bathos? Um, 
a, it would be like someone giving a really serious speech of anger to other characters and saying like, I need to do this. Like, just take this seriously for once, please. This means a lot to me. It's like a moment of silence as everyone's ashamed afterward. And then the character who just gave the speech, like, let's rip like the loudest possible fart. <laughs> That's pathos. Like, it just makes it funny and ironically funny because uh, you're taking something serious and just really let the air out of it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love, love, love that. And I think animation does that so well. Um, and that's what really made me realize like, this is my brand of comedy that mm. I really like. I think that we're very similar in that sense um, because I, I notice a lot of things like things that are just goofy just for the sake of being goofy, but also being goofy for the sake of the story. Um, but that bathos, I think, speaks towards something having a little bit more wit and understanding. There's like that playful feeling that the creator's hand is causing trouble. Mm-hmm. Like you feel that. It, it's that feeling of uh, duck amuck, where yes. somebody else is manipulating these characters and causing all the problems for all these people. Because that's true. Like these animators are in any Looney Tunes cartoon, especially the Wiley e. Coyote, it's like, I'm gonna find the way that this fails. And hopefully that way is gonna be fun and exciting and surprising and ridiculous. <laughs> and I think it's that the whole idea of comedy being either the surprising what it the the surprising payoff of an audience's expectations or the surprising uh, denial of the audience's expectations. I think I think it's both of those. Like we are all delighted by either one of those two things, a surprising denial of what we expected or a surprising uh, payoff of exactly what we expected. Yeah, it would be like um, <clears throat> if you had something that took place entirely like in a fancy mansion's den and above the fireplace was mounted a gun they named Chekhov. And then at the end, <laughs> the murder you're expecting is caused by someone grabbing like the fire poker and stabbing someone <laughs> instead of the gun going off. <laughs> like you're expecting the gun and you just like no audience. You can't have the gun going off. That's what we mean by like denial of audience expectations in a playful way. Right. Or somebody grabs for the gun, they drop it, and then you spend two minutes of the gun shooting this thing that causes this other thing that causes this other thing that causes this other thing. And you're just watching like this and then you forget about it. Like, oh, I guess that's not going nowhere. And then something else happens <laughs> because of that. It's it's the eventual surprising payoff of the expectation or the subversion of that expectation. Mm-hmm. But Bethos is like act, act, absolutely subverting the expectation of where the audience is going. It's a bit build up, build up, build up, drop. Mm-hmm. 
And, if, and we, we like being dropped. We like that free fall feeling in a story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's one way of describing it. That sounds dangerous. It does sound <clears throat> dangerous. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm still on Wiley Coyote. Like, we like that free fall. I mean, I guess on, on the topic of, like, all this comedy stuff, too, I think the other thing that I've really been inspired by and taken away from animation and realized is my voice is... Um, like fun expressions and non-dialogue moments that can either capture character or propel the plot forward. Mm. And I think a lot of that, especially in animation, might not come from a script that might come from the story department. And there's lots of ways that that gets developed. Um, but it's something that's really core to that art form. Because I think especially like in, in plays and playwriting, it's like, only write dialogue, no stage directions. And it's like, well, stage directions are a story also. Right. When they matter for that story. You can't just write a novel for fun. Tennessee Williams. Um, <laughs> Eugene like, O'Neill. Oh, oh. um, but yeah, so mastering that non-verbal character and story, I think, is really tricky. I actually took a class this year on like doing some of that in writing, which I found really interesting and compelling as well. Um so that's something I'm thinking a lot about recently. And comedy is like obviously a lot of that nonverbal stuff. Hmm. I think the nonverbal, I think we expect it a little bit more in animation or we allow for it a little bit more. Um, I've tried in my playwriting to have moments of action speak you know, turn this into a moment. It's a it's a stage direction, like something has to happen. There's one play that I was directing once, and a lot of people were, ta- were talking about this throwaway moment. And I'm like, this is the moment where the character changes his mind. It's It may be in four lines of dialogue and a couple of stage directions, but the character has to absolutely change their mind. So this experience has to be pivotal. So we need to make this an event. Um, and the reviewer called it Chaplin-esque because <laughs> for this actor, because it was it was all just like making an event of each stage direction. And it had to, because it had to land that this character was in the worst possible position, worst possible situation and they had to change their mind about how they were treating everyone else. So it had to feel terrible and it had to take its time. And that's, people laughed most at that moment. They laughed most during that scene and also another scene, which <laughs> I won't talk about, but, um, but that, that was one of the biggest moments and it, w- it could have been a throwaway moment if you hadn't leaned into those stage directions leaned into those action moments. Yeah, because acting isn't just saying words in a tone that becomes a story. It's also what mm. you do with your body and your face. And again, it's probably hard. I'm, I'm not an actor. It's probably hard to teach for acting. Um, but that's just realizing you have to do that to communicate and tell that story is um, a big uh, hurdle to get over. When, when I did directing in college, I used to play a really insufferable directing game 
uh, called the Discovery Game, where I just have the actors like doing the thing, and I just have like Discovery, and they have to tell me like what one of them just learned in that moment. It was basically like doing live script analysis with a cast, which I'm sure was not fun for anybody, and I would do it differently now. Uh, but also, <laughs> when you're in college and you don't know any better on either side of that, that is probably helpful. I think somebody somebody I was talking to recently talked about how they always showed their actors Bugs Bunny cartoons hmm. to teach them the value of your using your body for a moment. And I, I was like, thank you. Somebody fin- Somebody else is finally saying this. Bugs Bunny is hands down one of the best actors ever. Mm-hmm. Like watching those old Chuck Jones, especially, I'm sorry, everyone else, but like Chuck Jones, Bugs Bunny is the best acting Bugs Bunny. Best timing, best physicality, remarkable Bugs Bunny. It is impossible to not know what Bugs is feeling in any given moment. Mm-hmm. He gives whole Shakespearean asides and just a glance to a camera. Oh, and the stillness? Just... And I think that's something else that I noticed in um, in my list. There was a, another theme was the idea of the outward expression of inward feelings and like the internal world of a character being expressed outwardly and in a interesting way. Like I, I, speaking both in terms of like story or and individual moments, or I think both, yeah. story and individual moments, but I think back to the moments of, I think musicals um, allow for this, a moment where we channel a character's emotion, it gets bigger than their body, and it stylizes and changes the whole show. It takes over the whole stage. And animation's like, yeah, that's just what we do like that just happens yeah. in animation that's why the animated movie musical is the thing that has like lasted through the drought of actual movie musicals in hollywood because i think of the one that just keeps coming back every time i think of this idea is almost there in the princess and the frog where the whole animation style changes I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. That's like how I know that it's a it's a pivotal moment where you just realize I can show what this character is feeling and thinking and how they feel about what they're talking about by changing the visual and the color and everything. And we can live in this character's uh, internal monologue for a lot longer than a lot of things let us. Mm -hmm. I think theater does that with the second act monologues that generally happen in plays. But I think there are other ways that you could do it just rather than it just in monologue. Um, You can have moments where it is dynamic and interesting and play with time and play with um, narration and who's talking and who's in control of the story just to show what's happening to a character internally. Yeah. You need time to freeze? Yeah, tell, tell the time to freeze so you can follow what's happening. 
It's like you can do anything on stage or in animation. So why be bogged down by realism? And I know every, if there's any professional storyboard people or story department people who just heard me say that they're cringing because you can't do anything in animation. It requires budget and design time. I get that. If you had infinite budget and time, you could do anything in animation. <laughs> well, I think, I think it's true that you could have infinite possibilities, but there are better possibilities for the story that you're telling within the constraints of everything else. If you have a black box theater, you're constrained as well. That doesn't mean you don't have a wealth of open possibilities. It just means there may be better possibilities that fit your story, your budget, and everything else. So, I forget if I've told you about this I mentioned on the podcast. One of my proudest directing m- moments in shows was in a black box in college. And for funsies, not for credit, for funsies, I really wanted to direct Macbeth mm. <laughs> in a black box with no budget. And uh, something that I did that I'm really proud of and I think really left an impression on people was for the witches because it's the fear of the unknown. I had them just illuminated. They were behind curtains, illuminated from behind by lights. You just saw moving shadows whenever they were characters on stage mm. instead of actual humans. It was like inspired by animation. How do we act with shadows to be compelling as characters without being able to move from the spot, but doing something interesting in a black box with no budget that worked for the show. Hmm. And, you know, the, the more that I've done stuff like that, that to be influenced and allow animation to inspire my writing and inspire my directing, the more people say I do very theatrical work. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought? It's really funny. Like, well, <laughs> you could call it theatrical, I suppose. but It's a theatrical run Walt Disney era 1940s short. <laughs> right. I'm just pulling from what I know. I'm just pulling. And I think that's the other thing. People say, write what you know from experience, but also write what you know in terms of, like, not just life, but what you have experienced and witnessed and watched. and Yeah, just the how to do it, how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So kind of along your lines of, uh, like, bringing the internal outward, uh, getting, I think we've talked a lot about comedy. Something else that I found um, that I'm inspired by hits me hard is also like, um, I have trouble articulating this one, but um, a little bit of b- bringing the profound outward. Mm. Uh, so one piece that I really like in animation that we actually haven't talked about this podcast hardly at all is uh, the movie Persepolis where it's about the main character's relationship with many things, including her own spiritual relationship with God. Mm. And because it's animated, they do some really interesting stuff with like how God is represented and how she talks to God and what the relationship is. And I think animation uh, is really good at that suspension of disbelief. And I had a journal entry in college in a playwriting course from a playwriting professor. And I think she was like humored and like, let me roll with it because I just had to journal about writing. Uh, but it was really influential to me at the time of thinking about the, the uncanny valley and how we suspend disbelief in something. And there's 
film realism being as real as possible. And then you can get down into things that, um, what's a great example. Um, I feel like there's been movies recently where like they have a clearly CG animated deer in a scene. Like you could have, like it takes you out of the moment because you can tell this is computer animated Hmm. and there could be a better solution or more theatrical solution to doing this on film than having something that's clearly fake happening. And it takes you out of that moment in the uncanny Valley. You're like, no, I don't want this fake CG deer running through a field. You didn't need this. And then getting out of the Valley, you can do theatrical stuff on stage because you can suspend your disbelief of like, this is theater. We're using our imagination now. Hmm. But animation takes you way out of that valley because it's all fake. Your belief is just suspended from the beginning. You can do a lot more and bring the audience in sooner with animation because they don't have to get over this hump of like um, deciding to believe that something is happening. They're already deciding to believe that moving images are a story and real. Is that why force witches work? in the Clone Wars and not necessarily in live action and Star Wars films, I wonder. Wait, say it again? Like the the Force witches. Oh, yeah, the witches. Yeah, if that works better in animation or if that's just too far for our brains to go in live action, like would we all go Han Solo like the Force doesn't, that's not how the Force works. I mean, ILM is so talented at visual effects. I think if they put the four switches in a live action type thing, I fully believe that I could suspend my disbelief <laughs> at this point. In the 70s, no. Today, I think they could make it work. <laughs> hmm. yeah. Anything else that you find thematic in what inspires you? I feel like a lot of it is just surprise. It just comes down to the idea of being surprised and the delight that comes from that surprise. Like, uh, and I think it goes along with what you just talked about, though, the suspension of disbelief. When I go to watch an animated show, when I go to watch an animated movie, um, and a Star Wars movie. When I go to watch these things, I don't go to see it as somebody who's a writer. I go to it as an audience member to experience. And I legitimately enjoy being surprised by things. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's that's a moment that is, that's an example of something where it's easy to identify this is your voice, but it's hard to speak in that voice. Because hmm. I, I find surprise really hard while writing because it's impossible to surprise yourself. Right. <laughs> so it's like you'll write something and like, is this actually a surprise for the audience or am I crazy? Well, I think something that's helped me so I don't have to worry about, because I've, I've thought a lot about what is surprise? What should be shocking to people? And every time I've tried to write a uh, shocking moment on stage, like it never fires off well. You know, I, I think 
the way that I've been starting to think of storytelling, the more that I've watched these animation things, animated stories and going through it, the more that I've understood, especially because of animation, because you are directing people's eyes where nothing once was, now you're getting really hyper intense on this is what you're gonna see in this frame. We have complete control of everything in this frame. I've been thinking about my writing that same way in terms of um, directing the audience's eye on what they're paying attention to at any given moment and being really, really cognizant of audience. And while I mostly write plays and you can't say the audience now looks to the left and notices this, but manipulating the stage space to say this is what is important. This is what they're seeing. Either playing with time, darkness, light, whatever you can to wrench control of the frame um, and the storytelling. And I think that way, maybe you might be able to hit that surprise. At least you lead them where you, you want them to get to, whether they're surprised or not. Maybe you can do that in a second or third draft. But, you know, once you figure out the mechanics of things. Mm -hmm. I think I've, I don't know if I've told you my, my bus or my tour metaphor. Like, You're like taking the audience on a tour bus? Yeah, you're taking them on a tour bus or you're taking your specifically so you don't have to think about quotes audience. Um, if you think about taking your best friend or that one specific audience member on a tour of your hometown, like what are the things that are important? You're going to focus their attention on different things. They're going to point out things differently. So if I'm writing a story for you and I, I imagine you taking you through the story, I'll do it one way. But if I invite, you know, Jack into the car, now we're going a different path and I'm showing different things and we're going a different way. So you have to have that very specific person or, you know, nine-year-old Chris in the car, which is basically like getting Jack in the car. You know, like that's, that's basically the same thing in a lot of ways. You just know what's happening more internally with nine-year-old Chris. Right, right, exactly. But I think that surprise comes from construction and that construction comes from your audience. And the most that I've heard way back even from the creators of the Looney Tunes cartoons in the 30s and 40s was we didn't make cartoons for kids we made cartoons for us. And what made us laugh made, made everyone else laugh. So you have to have that, you have your first, your first um, focus should be on yourself. Yeah. I think that's the downfall of a lot of like the, the toddler animation programming. Mm. And not even animation programming, just like toddler programming is like, trying to apply a science to like what toddlers like and coming up with like, I don't know, Teletubbies. <sighs> but then things that are great, like Doc McStuffins and Bluey are really, they're, they're done for the people, the people who make the show and you and I can follow along and really enjoy this piece of art too. Uh, it's just, 
maybe told at a level, it's story told a lower, a lower level for that audience, but it's still compelling to anyone. Right. You're absolutely right. I don't know if I'm regurgitating what you're saying back to you effectively. No, you're doing, you're doing very well. Oh, good, good. Did you have any other themes that you found? Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about specificity, which I feel like is just, I don't know if that's really a, a, a theme that's specific to me or inspiring to specificity in general is like a word you hear a lot with writing. Mm. Um, and thinking of, there are specific moments where like the story and character come together in such a way you're like, oh, I wish I thought of that. That's so brilliant. Or you didn't see coming. Speaking to your surprise um, theme as well. Um, I think a lot about like the uh, spoilers for the end of the movie Onward. So skip ahead <laughs> 30 seconds. Um, at the end of Onward, like a, a dragon in this fantasy world comes together, cobbled together from the high school of the main character. And like literally his dragon slay is high school and coming of age. And it's like, oh, that's so smart. No one's ever done this. Look at that specificity and symbolism and surprise to me as an audience for how character and story intersect here and the world building intersect. Um, those moments are great. Uh, I find mm. them so inspiring of like, oh, this all came together in a surprising and satisfying way. And there's also that comedy of the payoff of the unexpected surprise that the dragon's face is <laughs> yes. is the mascot face of the dragon. And then it gets like the frowny eyebrows when it oh. first, oh, so good. And then it pays off because then you could hear the, the high school bell in its roar. Like it just, it's just build on, build on expectation. And then it's the undercut of the expectation. Look, it's the happy face and then, so really, I guess, to sum up uh, the bulk of this this episode of our podcast, um, the themes that we're inspired by are the ending of Onward. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, absolutely. It's all, it could be all encapsulated in, in the one dragon. You can find all of what we've just talked about. The internal understanding of what a character is going through, a very specific character, <laughs> symbolism, Comedy, expectation, bathos. I think a lot of times people talk about like what what's a perfect script to reference and to teach from. And I think we've talked about Stranger Than Fiction a couple times. While mm -hmm. while not animated, perfect script, perfect character, perfect plot. Um, regardless of how exciting you find the movie, it is perfectly executed. And I think that in animation we should we should talk more about how Onward is an animated equivalent of Stranger Than Fiction for perfect execution of everything and should be teachable. Mm. Anywho, uh, Chris, last question for you, because I'm really interested. As you looked at things you were inspired by and the things that were most influential and formative to your taste, um, do you see those things as kind of a straight line or does it kind of splinter a bit in tree roots? Are you influenced in different ways by different things? Do you find new pathways? Um, or is it really just A to B to C to D? That is a really good question. I think as I was looking at it and I made my list of how I've been influenced by things, I think there are these poles 
<laughs> that are pretty clear in terms of being uh, chronological in my experience. So I grew up loving goofy cartoons. Like those were like, I think goofy a little bit more than Bugs Bunny. I think goofy was like always hit things just right, especially those how-to. Here's the narrator, because it's every everything is bathos. Here's the narrator talking high-minded about this, and here's Goofy messing that up. Like it's it's just bathos every single moment. And I just had that realization of that. Um, <laughs> but I think it's for me, it is that chronological from this to this to this, but at different times. It's reminding myself of something new or something that I'd forgotten from something I experienced. And then that gets strengthened and ties. And it's the connection points between things. So it makes more of like a web toward a greater understanding. And it's like always having to go back and learn the same lesson through a different um through a different lens. And each of these is like that different lens of learning that lesson. But it's like, oh, it's all the way back from this that I should have learned that and, and just re making those connection points and just making it stronger. Because to be perfectly honest, looking through even what I thought were serious plays, like I, I have probably one of my most dramatic plays it was it was also influenced by animation and probably closer to something like fantasia or you know these internal struggles of people but yeah i i think it's both it's it's more it's chronological but at different times i've had to go back to relearn those lessons over and over again hmm. what about for that you makes sense um, I think you're raising good points that are influencing how I'm going to answer this. Um, <laughs> I think speaking in terms of just animated things that I've saw and have inspired me, I think that it's pretty um, linear up to a point, um, probably from like birth until college. It's like this influenced how I felt and then I saw this thing which changed my view of animation. So I moved to a different bracket of animation then like felt the same way for a while then saw another thing and moved to a different bracket. Mm. And I think in college, I started to realize that like not just animation influenced and inspired me. It's also like the books that I read and the video games I played, the music I listened to. And that's when I started to look back and go, Oh, I like this thing because I also like this thing and this other art form. And it started to like merge in college. I think after college, it's, splinters a bit more and becomes more of a web like you're talking about for me like it definitely in just animated things is um more adult oriented animated things that i've seen that have influenced me and that kind of like that is something i think is like bracketed in different ways and inspires mm -hmm. me and changes me and then i went back to looking at more like all audiences and younger audiences things to inspire me as well at some point and they started to interplay and web just in the animation world I also didn't feel like I was inspired by too many things that are um, older, with the exception of Looney Tunes, which was just on all the time sure. when I was a kid. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think some people, especially in more austere art forms, uh, 
say that you must look at the classics and who are you if you're not influenced by this thing? Um, and I think that for all art forms, it's good to know about the classics, but it's also, you know, n- new isn't always better, but new is always moving in a better direction. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the trajectory of quality and how an art form exists should, it's always improving and increasing. It's okay to like newer things more than older things in my book. Um, to, I thought it was something that was really interesting in how he looked at stuff. Hmm. It's going to be hard for me to say objectively now whether like Inside Out or Aladdin is a better movie. Like Aladdin did so much for me when I was so little influenced my taste and in so many ways. And I have so much nostalgia for Aladdin. It'd be hard to say objectively whether Aladdin or something newer like Inside Out that also influenced me is better. I don't know if they're worth comparing anyway. Um, no, but you know. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's important to compare better constructed. I think what you're getting at and is your experience with that thing. I I think. Uh, a lot of people were asking me when the live action Aladdin came out, they were asking on my opinion because for me, Aladdin was so formative. Um, I convinced my entire uh, <laughs> junior year class to make a genie float for homecoming. <laughs> um, and I had, I dressed up as Aladdin and they carried me on their shoulders and got somebody else to dress up as Jasmine. And there are pictures of me like blowing kisses to this crowd of people and people fanning me with like paper, uh, paper leaves, fans, you know, like, so I was all in on Aladdin, like, um, but the live action surprised me and did did things in, in new and different ways. So my experience with that thing is not corroded by Disney re-looking at that story or doing something else. So when I think about Aladdin, when I think about um, especially Beauty and the Beast, those are the moments that I started realizing there are people behind these things who make these things. Like that's Beauty and the Beast when I realized, wait, the people who made this musical about this plant are the people who are making this animated story. Like that's when, that's when my understanding of the interconnectedness between theater and play and um, animation really crystallized. It, it just, it was like, wait a minute, they made, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't say exactly, but they made probably one of the, best animated films of all time using what they knew about theater. Mm -hmm. And it worked magnificent, you know, magnificently. But also, I don't know if like a child seeing Aladdin today would be as formatively influenced by it as we were. And that's also okay. Just because like Aladdin was such a convergence of like, taste and building on what was known about art and taste at the time. Mm-hmm. That's why, partly why it was formative when we saw it. Yeah. Someone today could see and go like, that's really good. I know all this already. <laughs> right. 
it was subversive in a, in a way that was surprising, especially for Disney. But now Disney does sub, subversive stuff now and then, you know, now <laughs> we're in a, we're in a post emperor's new groove Disney era. Um, which that I feel like that movie influenced that movie is influencing my current play right now. Like I think Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> like if if you want Irene Adler influenced by a llama, you you got it. Like it's it's there. Oh, which we should talk about, which I have nothing to plug for for our listeners for future, but you should plug you should plug something. Should I? Is that appropriate? Yeah. This? It's our last episode. Rules are out the window. <laughs> yeah, in in May of 2022, my play Prima Donna uh, has its world premiere at Catco or the Contemporary American Theater Company in Columbus, Ohio, um, and it's about Irene Adler. It's her story, influenced and inspired by the past 200 episodes of talking about animation. It absolutely is. I was. I was most definitely pulling, I, as much as I pulled from A Scandal in Bohemia, which is a lot of what that, um, the, the second half of the play is about, I was also pulling from The Great Mouse Detective. Like that, in my brain, that's how Sherlock Holmes is, is through Basil of Baker Street. I was pulling from, um, Emperor's New Groove in terms of here's a narrator telling their story and also here's a narrator stopping their story. Here are other things getting in the way of the story. Um, And I was pulling from, oh gosh, what else was I grabbing from? I think Goofy at times. I could see that. Also, also um, romantic comedies. I was pulling from like, I wish that Nora Ephron had had made an animated comedy of some kind because I think Nora Ephron would have made like the best animated movie um, for like a real true romance. But yeah, I pulled a lot from Nora Ephron. Like, there's definitely like. 1990s Hugh Grant in there from romantic comedies. I could see that. So mostly animation, but also like I was surprised to find this romantic comedy era in there. But that's what I mean in terms of what you're working on going back to these things. Um, But also in line of your web where you talked about adult animation and animation for younger kids. Um, I, I got that because of Jack. <laughs> yeah. I, I roped you and I know that very early on we had a episode, I think it was like our fifth or sixth episode. It's like, here are the things that Jack likes. Let's take a look at them. And we looked at Doc McStuffins and I will not lie. Doc McStuffins um, changed my writing life. Because around that time, I was asked to write a play um, for younger audiences. And the only way I knew how to do it was to look at Doc McStuffins and see how Doc McStuffins worked in a good way. And really look at my son and what he enjoyed at the time. 
And I know if I ever wrote a play for young audiences, well, not if I ever, like the next play that I, one of the other new plays that I'm working on is also for younger audiences. But it's looking at that very specific audience and not talking down to them ever. Because mm-hmm. Doc McStuffins doesn't talk down to kids. It's on their level, but it doesn't talk down to them at all. And that's the same with Bluey, which is like, let's have some meaningful, profound conversations. Um, which there are certain episodes where Jack doesn't want to watch the end of Bluey. Yeah. No, that's the most important part. But he, he stops it and we're like, well, why did you stop it? And he said, it's too satisfying. Like, and, and what he means is like, it's, it's too emotionally, it's too cathartic. It's too cathartic for him. And he's like, I can't have that. I'm not in the mood right now for that giant cathartic moment. And so catharsis can happen in seven minutes. Like, mm-hmm. like you could have a massive cathartic moment in seven minutes. I talked a lot about stuff that wasn't Aladdin or Irene Adler just now, but... That's that's kind of how it works when you're going back through your the things that you love and saying, wait, this is like this. This is the surprise of this. Yeah, it's just nice to have reference points to when you're creating. You're not, you're not, especially with writing. You you're not like having a stone block that you're carving down into a masterpiece of a sculpture. Mm. in a void without ever having seen any sculpture or the human body before. <laughs> like you have things to reference, go back and reference those things and go like, Oh yeah, I should rewatch this thing because this is like that. Mm-hmm. And it, and I think not everything looking back at the list, there's some things that are big, um, but it's about what they reminded me about too. And I put the Peanuts movie on here. That surprised me a little bit. Um, But I remember how much joy Jack had from watching the Peanuts movie. And I remember how much joy I had from watching the Peanuts movie. And it was like, these characters are just nice. These characters are nice. They're not obnoxious. And the story, I don't want to say is paper thin, but there's like, it's just small. And it's not about people saving the world. It's not about somebody in a scary, horrifying thing. It's not about saving their family. It's about returning a pencil to the little red-haired girl and being able to say, hey, I want to be your friend. Like, that's all the movie is about. And my God, how refreshing is that? Like, it could be small like that because it's, it doesn't have to mean the, a world changing. It's a world changing for that one person. And for Charlie Brown to be able to say to her, I want to be your friend, like his entire worldview about himself has to shift. I'm worthy to be friends with this person. I think it speaks to like the surprise theme we were talking about earlier because right now what's happening in animation is an acknowledgement of like, we came from like pure genre storytelling Mm. and many times we're still borrowing from genre, but we don't have to be limited by those genres because the things people love. And I think a lot of things we're inspired by now are what you're talking about of the peanuts movie 
yes, being animation, but being just like small personal story. Steven, Steven Universe being like, yes, a fantasy sci-fi world uh, in animation, but it's ultimately the point of Steven Universe is not about fighting and how to avoid a fight mm-hmm. and not having like those crazy action sequences and um, Frozen breaking out of like the Disney genre um, and really acknowledging what's happening there and playing with your expectations that way. It's animations kind of coming out of that and I don't know, like even probably some of my favorite episodes of DuckTales are when they're not on an adventure. <laughs> mm. Because family is the adventure. Yes. That's, that's the thesis. Family is the adventure. Yeah. Do we have anything else to say on our podcast? <laughs> oh my God. I, th- I thought you were going to say in this episode and then you say on this podcast and then it put this like Ugh. finality in there. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think so. I mean, that's how we often end our episodes. Like anything else? Oh, I don't, I don't think so. I think. And then I go on to like another sentence and say like two or three more things. And then we finalize I think that's where I go. I said, I don't think so. I think, I think we've said it all. I think it's just really important. And then I go on, but I'm not going to do that this time. Despite having just done that. Despite having just done that without like hyper analyzing how we end our, (laughs) (laughs) how we end our episodes. No, I'm just really uh, appreciative to, for this episode and for all the episodes previously to look at things that I love. And I just really hope that you, uh, Mackenzie, and you, our listeners, um, enjoyed enjoyed the ride. Yeah, well said. Go forth and create. Stay tuned to us and to animation as a form of storytelling in general. Uh, we've enjoyed having you. I hope you enjoyed having us in your yeah. ear holes. Well, I was, do we want to, I guess you, you just ruined it. Cause we never got to, we did have one last homework time. Oh, I mean, ah, oh. we can play the theme song anyway. Okay. Homework time. Let's. <laughs> what, what Mackenzie just said, go for the create, go make something, figure out what inspires you. Uh, discover your voice through what other people have told you. That stuff. Uh, I think I have to end this uh, SNL style. I, I, there are too many people for us to thank um, for everything, just not just for this episode, but for the entire run of 200 episodes of Writers Get Animated. <laughs> and hours and hours and hours of not just recording time, but also just <laughs> between episodes what we do. Um, I think, first of all, the biggest hardiest this could not exist without you thanks to nigel Catino, our engineer for um being so amazing at making things sound good and telling us uh what to buy to make things sound good when we went remote for like the majority of our run now um and for just being there rolling with the punches and um 
oh man, I just, I can't thank Nigel enough because it just feels like he has done so much work and taken so much of the effort of making this uh, onto himself. And I will be eternally grateful for that. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, thank you to everyone who's worked on versions of our theme song. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jacob Reed um, and the Champagne Drops. Uh, and also, uh, I guess on, on the topic of theme song for our icons, thank you to Chris Leva himself <laughs> for making all of our art. <laughs> Uh, thank you to our partners for putting up with this. Uh, Rochelle, Esteban, Becky, uh, thank you for uh, giving us time to do this stuff. Becky, especially for letting us uh, be in your house <laughs> when <laughs> Nigel was recording us in person. I'm really grateful. It was always good when we got a Becky laugh from somewhere else in the house. That was, that was always nice. Yes. I do want to also say thank you to Jack for watching most of my homework with me uh, and also for inspiring me to watch new things and uh, go back and, and experience things. Um, he's ready to rewatch Steven Universe Future now. So we're, <laughs> in one year we've, we've watched it twice and now we have to, all, the whole run of Steven Universe. <laughs> He's got the biggest emotions at the end, too. He's oh, ready. I know. He loves it. And also thank you to all of our guests throughout the years. Jacob Reed, who was a guest. Uh, <laughs> Rebecca Myers. Uh, Brendan Hay. Um, who else did we have as a guest? Uh, I list at some point. Phil Fine. Rochelle. Um I think Sarah Hickson was on at one point. Yeah, Sarah Hickson and, and Carol, they were on. Uh, Adam Cottle, Megan Patrick, our oh, spider, spider panel. The spider panel. Oh, spider panel. <laughs> uh, and thank you to every professional writer who's been on the show um, or shared with us on Twitter in some way. Some of you we've got permission to quote without you being on the show. That's appreciated in. Maybe you'll never hear this, but we appreciate you anyway. Our hearts go out. Our envious, envious hearts. Uh, not envious. I, I like, think our aspirational hearts. Aspirational hearts. That's a good word. We're inspired and aspire. Yes. I'm not, I'm not jealous. <laughs> I mean, that's a me problem. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Mackenzie's... <laughs> I, I both uh, am grateful to follow your career and success, and I'm happy for everything for you. And then I have an internal, like, me jealousy problem. But that, as we talked about, shouldn't be a, a writer problem to compare yourself to others. But that's my my journey. I'm overcoming that still. And just because we're at the end of the podcast doesn't mean that we are fully formed folk writers, <laughs> people, humans, as you say, Mackenzie. <laughs> such a good turn of phrase <laughs> I that's how I hear you say it in my head every time <laughs> well before we get too deep into the human emotions of of fondness and sadness we should probably say goodnight you don't need to follow us anywhere because we're not going to post anymore so I mean we'll still be on Twitter at WG animated <laughs> we may still have a Facebook page so you can like us there 
you can still subscribe and listen to our old episodes for a while. Um, we'll see. We can we can keep it up <laughs> on on the web. Writersgetanimated.podbean.com for all of our old show notes and all the old episodes you can get there as well. And soon it'll just be Tom and Jaren, Willy Wonka, Moana, and that Ahsoka episode. This will be the only three people listen to. I know. Why are those three episodes? I don't know why those hit as much as... Oh, and the uh, Nothing nothing Stops Stella Duck. That's also a really high listen to one. It's a really popular oh, yeah. one. Mm-hmm. People love Della Duck. Now I know. If you're the only podcast with Della Duck in the title, you too can get listeners. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, thank you, Mackenzie, for for this journey of event where it started trying to figure out who was the father of Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and then learning about ourselves as writers um, and getting to watch so many things that I probably wouldn't have watched without homework time. So I I really um, I really appreciate it and have I really enjoyed these past six years. Yeah, and thank you too as well, Chris, for such a magical journey and broadening my taste horizons and knowledge horizons. And our journey's not done, so you know. I'm to say goodbye, but goodbye to this part of the journey. Yeah. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Good night, everybody. <laughs>